Hello, and welcome back to Slice of Culture. As we mentioned in the previous segment, today is our ultimate staff interview. We're here with Shira, who will share her experience working in Edgewater, ways in how to improve Edgewater, and of course, about her family immigration stories. Thank you for joining with us today, Shira. As usual, can you start off by telling us your name, your role at Edgewater, and your pronouns? My name is Shira Belenke. I go by she, her. Um, I'm the teen librarian here at Edgewater, and I've been working here for almost eight years. Wow, okay, so what's the best thing about being a teen librarian? I love working with young people, whether it's like children or teens. I just love to watch people discover the world and realize that what they do makes a difference. How did you know that this was the best job for you? What just kind of made it click? So prior to becoming a librarian, I had been working at a children's museum as the education and program manager. And I was at the point in my career where I couldn't go any further without getting my master's degree. So I was sitting with a friend, I'm like, I don't know what I wanna go back to school for. And I was talking about a couple of different, you know, ideas that I had in my head. And she was just like, I don't know what you're even contemplating. You're a librarian. You always have been. Because from the time I was a kid, I used to organize my books. I had little cards in my books so I could keep track of which of my friends was borrowing which of my books. And just always all about the books and informal education. Yeah, it's crazy that you didn't even notice that and your friend actually helped you. That's wonderful. So because you work at the Edgewater Library branch, you have to commute here every day. Is that correct? That's correct. So how do you usually commute here? Um, so it's always been a combination. If the weather's nice, I'll bike. If the weather's not nice either, I'll, you know, drive or take transit. Since the pandemic, I've only been biking though. So where do you commute from? From Albany Park. About how long does it take you if you come with your bike? It depends on how traffic, you know, whether or not I hit the red lights or the green lights. So it could be anywhere from like a 20 minute to a half an hour bike ride. That seems like nice exercise. So you were, ma- you were mentioning transit a little bit ago, and one of my questions were, are things like public transportation easily available for you if you had to use it to come to work? Yes and no. Um, unfortunately, because I would have to do a combination of buses and train or buses and walking or two buses it sometimes took me like an hour to do that commute but if I were to do it by car it's like 15 minutes so you definitely have better options than transit so you mentioned that you live in Albany Park would you ever consider moving to Edgewater Edgewater is a great community but it's a bit too congested for me and maybe it's because most of my time on Edgewater is spent on Broadway 
but it just, it's a little bit too congested. Yeah, that's understandable. So how would you say Edgewater is different from Albany Park? Um, there's a lot of similarities between them because Albany Park is also very much an immigrant community. In fact, my, my grandmother and the grandmother of many of my friends all grew up in Albany Park because they were part of the like Eastern European immigration there. So that's similar. Um, but aside from that, I really, I don't know. There, I guess there are a lot of similarities because there's Loyola University over here and over there there's North Park University. So there's a lot of influx of college-age kids in both communities. Mm -hmm. Albany Park is also kind of uh, congested, but because I know the community, I also know where all the parks are. Mm -hmm. So I feel better there. Mm -hmm. So the people who live in Edgewater are very passionate about this neighborhood and has a lot to say about it. Why do you think Edgewater is so loved? That's a really good question. And I really feel like a lot of that possibly comes down to money. Because from what I've seen here, there's definitely a group of people who have time to donate time. And I mean, it's amazing that, that that's what they choose to do with their free time and that they make the choice to find the free time. And that's what they choose to do with their extra resources. So I think a lot of it does have to do with, you know, having privilege, which some other communities might not have. And then also, I think a lot of it also has to do with just the history of the community. The fact that just the origins of the community were so tight-knit and so into working together. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned history because I've also noticed that the residents of Edgewater not only appreciate Edgewater but also know about Edgewater's rich history. And this is unfortunately not very common. Personally speaking, I don't really know about the history of West Rogers Park, and that's where I grew up since I was three months old. Why and how do you think residents of Edgewater know so much about Edgewater's history? I don't know if I have the answer to that. I do know that a lot of the history and culture on the south side was lost during the white flight. I know that there was a lot of turnover in the history and culture of West Rogers Park as it changed from a heavily Jewish community to a heavily Indian community. I know that Albany Park is constantly changing as the influx of immigrants changes from one culture to another. So I don't know how Edgewater has been lucky enough to keep its rich history. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And 
I want to try to find out why that's the case because almost all the people that we interviewed, like they had some great things to say, Edward, to say about Edgewater, and it seemed like they knew so much about it. So to follow up, what are some benefits of knowing about your neighborhood's history? Well, I was always raised with uh, you need to know your past to understand your future, that you need to know where you were to figure out where you're going. So uh, understanding a community would make it easier to like know what helped in the past, what didn't help in the past, what was important in the past, to try to figure out what's important in the future. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that because um, so many residents of Edgewater know about Edgewater's history, and that's probably why there are so many development initiatives being changed in Edgewater and why Edgewater is so advanced and developed compared to some other neighborhoods. So as a librarian, how would you think is the best way to educate people and encourage them to learn more about their neighborhood's history and past? That's a really tough one. So in the past, I've had people come in and talk about gentrification and the changing of neighborhoods and just understanding how, understanding the ebbs and flows. I don't know because I don't typically do, you know, educational type programming. I do a lot of just talking with the teens and figuring out where they are and coming to them to help guide them. And I talk to them about getting involved in the community, especially when we talk about politics, which has been a main thing for the whole eight years that I have been working here. It's constantly been a, you feel, you feel powerless. This is how you gain power. Your voice matters. It's not about the national, it's about the community. And so we talk about different ways that they can get involved and different ways they can volunteer and different ways they can participate from joining school clubs to interning within the community. So although you don't live in Edgewater, I believe hearing from your perspective on how to change Edgewater would be beneficial, especially since you don't have a bias towards Edgewater. So on that note, what do you think, in your opinion, is the biggest issue in Edgewater? The biggest issue in Edgewater has to do with teens and children finding safe places to be and participate. And one of the amazing things that I've seen in my eight years here is that those places have developed over time. When I first started at the library, there was not, I'm the first teen librarian here. And when I was hired, we did not have a space, you know, specifically for teens. And we have that now. Um, there was always the armory, but over at the armory, we now have a space specifically for teens. 
I don't know how that is impacting the neighborhood in terms of crime, in terms of helping the teens, but I do know at least within the teens that I've worked with, they know where they can go now. They know where it's safe. They know who they can go to. And I think that's really important for a community. I agree. So how do you think the people of Edgewater can come together to help solve this issue? I know you said that the Edgewater Library has a teen lounge now where teens can go and feel safe. But do you have any other ideas on how Edgewater or different community organizations can come together and maybe form some more of these alliances only for teens or anything like that? One of the biggest changes that I've seen in terms of when I was a teenager and the teenagers that I work with, a lot of it has to do with jobs. And I don't know how much of that is because I did the majority of my growing up in Oak Park, which is more suburban, as opposed to, you know, the city, but there aren't jobs for teens. So when they're looking to make money, they don't always make the best choices because the best choices aren't available to them. So I think that if, other than just having places for them to go and hang out, if there was also, you know, businesses that were willing to hire high schoolers, if there were more entry level positions so that they could go and they could make money and especially doing it in their community so they don't have to worry about transit and having to afford transit, that would be a huge benefit. Yeah. So I know you have some programs for teens at the library and you have resources here at the library that are definitely beneficial towards teens. Would you like to talk a little bit more about the programs that you have and how you think you're helping teens out? So as I've said in the past, I really try to stay from the like academic type programming. That's not where my interest was when I was a teenager. That's not where my interest is now but that doesn't mean that there aren't useful skills that can be had. So I like to do something called reading for chips. And the teens who I have participate in this program are typically not the ones who would be reading on their own. But I have them, you know, I pick out the book. So it's a book of my choosing and then they have to read out loud to me. And so uh, that's a really important skill because that goes into public speaking, but they probably don't see it that way. They just look at the hot chips they get at the end of the program, and that's okay. I also did a no-bake cooking program, and that, when you get down to it, that's all STEM, because they were working on learning how to follow a recipe. They were looking they were working on learning measurements. They were, there's also the whole chemistry component of what happens when you mix these things together. But it wasn't called chemistry. I didn't even call it STEM or STEAM. I just said, hey, let's make a no-bake cheesecake. Yeah, I think it's interesting and very creative how you're kind of disguising these lessons, these academic and life lessons for teens, 
and how they're enjoying it, they're clearly going to have fun. I mean, no baked cooking. It sounds so interesting and there's so much to learn from it that I feel like some of them may not even realize until you talk about it and that just kind of like changed their whole perspective about it. So onto a more positive note, although you stated that Edgewater is maybe not the place for you personally, what is something that you do enjoy about Edgewater? Um, what I really like about Edgewater, I've enrolled my kids at classes at the various park district buildings around Edgewater. I've, you know, gone down near the beach. There was one summer where I had my summer intern create a scavenger hunt going to all the different interesting places through Edgewater within a, I don't know, maybe it was like a five mile radius. So we weren't doing too much walking. So there's a lot to do. There's a lot to see. There's a lot of good food. Like I love Edgewater tacos. I love going to Lickety Split. I mean, it's kind of hard not to like the food. So I'd like you to hold that thought about food because we're gonna talk about it shortly. But for now, let's move on to immigration. When we were speaking previously, you stated that your grandfather was from Romania, but he moved here when he was very young. So firstly, have you ever been to Romania? I have never been out of the country. Do you wish to go there? Do you want to visit there? Even though that, you know, even though that's where my ancestry is, if I were to leave the country, that's probably not where I would choose to go. Mm -hmm. Where would you choose to go if you did leave the country? I've always wanted to go to New Zealand. That's interesting, okay. So would you say that the Romanian culture, such as cooking ethnic Romanian dishes, is prevalent and upheld in your family? Yes and no. When I was assigned to read Dracula, I loved it when they talked about the, um, when they talked about the brandy and they talked about Slivovitz, because I was like, wait a second, that's what we drink. And so it was just really nice to see like a little bit of my culture, which everybody else always made to seem so like foreign and so alien, seem like so normal in a book. Um, growing up, my, so my grandfather, I, I called him my Zadie, that's Yiddish for grandfather. He, he did most of the cooking and you know, not my grandmother, he did the cooking. So he was always making homemade chopped liver and he would make tongue. And so, it, you know, Foods like that were very common when we would go to his house. I also very quickly became vegetarian, but that's another story. <laughs> um, so there were definitely some uh, like Romanian meals, Eastern European meals that made it into our you know family culture. But more than that, it was. Um, our Judaism and the Eastern European Ashkenazic foods that were like a huge influence on my life. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Judaism and we're gonna talk about that shortly as well. 
So moving more on to your grandfather, have you had a chance to talk to him about his experience moving here? Does he have any stories to share about that that you know about? So one of his favorite stories was um, he moved here when he was four and his older brother who was four years older than him was eight and knew a little bit more English than my Zadie did. And uh, just stories about, you know, him getting the name for toilet paper wrong and him just calling it tushy paper over and over again, like running through the store being like, where's the tushy paper? And then because even though he came here at four, he still had an accent when I was born and I grew up watching Sesame Street and I was convinced that he was the count because he would count one, two, three, just like the count from Sesame Street. So does your grandfather know how to speak Romanian? I don't know if they spoke Romanian, they spoke Yiddish. Oh, okay. And unfortunately, he made the conscious decision not to teach my mom Yiddish. So there are phrases and there are words that we know and my parents more than my sister and me, but Yiddish kind of died out. My grandparents' generation, they really focused on like full immersion. You have to learn English, you can't, you know, you can't speak Yiddish, but you still have to be Jewish and you can only marry Jews. Mm -hmm. So it was, kind of, it, it, it was weird where the divide was. Do you know why the Yiddish language was kind of stopped being taught in your family? My grandfather grew up during a time where it was really common to see signs that would say things like, no blacks, no Jews. No dogs, no blacks, no Jews. So uh, trying to fit in was really important. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the world we live in today, do you wish that you did learn more of Yiddish and do you wish that that was still a part of you and a part of your identity? I do. Learning languages has always been a struggle for me. So even though I taught third grade Hebrew for a number of years at a Sunday school, when I spoke to actual Israelis, it was laughable because <laughs> I, I do not know a lot. Languages are a struggle. So it would have been nice if it had been more natural, if it had been something that I'd been raised with instead of something that I had to struggle with. Well, now let's move more into Judaism and how you are Jewish. So would you say that you are upholding Jewish traditions with your family? No. <laughs> um, I always thought I would, especially since I spent over a decade teaching religious school and, you know, trying to instill a love for the religion in other people's children. 
once I started full-time at the library, there was just no time for me to continue with teaching Sunday school. So I still celebrate holidays with my family and I still celebrate holidays with my friends, but I definitely don't feel like I'm doing the religion justice. You were talking about finding kosher foods. Would you say that it's common, like kosher is common in Edgewater? You can find restaurants here with kosher choices here, or would you say it's harder to do that? Um, it's actually easier to find kosher food in Edgewater than it is in Albany Park. Around Passover, there, um, Passover selection in the Jewel over here in Edgewater is a lot more substantial than the Passover selection at the Jewel over closer to Albany Park. And it's pretty much non-existent at the Jewel in um, Irving Park. So it's easier to find here. Do you know why that might be the case? Why is it easier here compared to other neighborhoods? I don't know because there's a yeshiva in Albany Park, so you would think that there would be more kosher food, but we're also not that far from Rogers Park, and there's a lot of kosher choices there. So if you just go up a mile or two, and there's like a kosher Dunkin' Donuts. So you just talked about a yeshiva. Can you please explain what that is? A uh, yeshiva is a Jewish school that's typically Orthodox. So like there's Jewish day school, but yeshiva is like, that's where the religious Jews go. Mm -hmm. So now let's move a little bit more into the Jewish traditions and celebrations that you celebrate with your family. So what are some traditional Jewish celebrations that you take part in? Ever since I was little, my parents have always hosted a Hanukkah party. Um, and growing up, I never felt like I was missing out on not celebrating Christmas because Hanukkah was a lot of fun. We lit candles, we sang songs, we cooked and ate special food, we would have a party. Sure, we would get presents, but that wasn't even the main part of it. So I never felt like it was a competition and I never felt like I was missing out. I just loved it how it was. Um, after we moved to Oak Park and my parents bought a house and had room for it, they started hosting a Passover Seder every year. Before that, it was my grandparents who hosted it, but then my parents took it over. There's been a lot of talk about who's going to take it over once they get too old to do it. And unfortunately, because I live in the city and I live in an apartment, I cannot make that commitment right now. We'll see about the future. So do you celebrate Hanukkah with your family, with your kids and your husband? Yeah. And we've had people over for Hanukkah and we decorate for Hanukkah. And um, we do, um, we light candles with the kids. 
In fact, I started letting them light candles as young as three years old. I have all these like super cute pictures and everybody else has a heart attack looking at my three-year-old holding a flame, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Do you think your kids also has the same perspective as you when you were younger? Because you mentioned that you never felt left out, you never felt like you were missing out on Christmas because you had Hanukkah. Do you think they feel the same way? No, <laughs> they feel like they're missing out. And I think a lot of it is because their like Jewish community isn't as strong as mine was. But um, along with those two holidays, um, one of my favorite holidays, which um, I've done seders for Tu B'Shvat at my house. Tu B'Shvat is birthday for the trees. And you celebrate that by eating 15 different types of fruit. And those 15 different types of fruit fall into four different categories. And that is always a super fun thing. And we do a Seder for that. And I invite people over and I lead that. It's one of my three favorite holidays. That sounds interesting. Like I've never heard about that holiday and it's kind of sad that I'm not very educated about the Jewish community. There are a lot of Jews who also don't know about that holiday. It's a minor one. But again, as I mentioned before, I'm vegetarian. I love fruit. I love trees. Yeah. It's a favorite holiday. Almost like it's meant for you. Mm -hmm. So let's move a little bit more into the traditional Jewish foods. So are there any traditional foods in your religion that you and or your family enjoys? So there are definitely traditional foods in the religion. Everybody, regardless of whether you are Ashkenazic or Spartic or Israeli, everybody eats challah and knows what challah is. Challah is the special bread. It's, um, it's an egg bread and it's braided that we eat on the Sabbath. And then on the Jewish New Year, we eat it, um, we make it in a circle to celebrate, you know, commemorate the year. And then there's also matzah, which is eaten at Passover, which is also called the, the bread of affliction, which if you could only eat matzah for a week, you would completely understand why it's called the bread of affliction. And outside of those main two foods, it really depends on whether you're an Israeli Jew or an Ashkenazic Jew or a Spartic Jew. Growing up, I only knew of Spartic, or I only knew of Ashkenazic Jews, and I didn't realize that there was such difference, even within something that I thought was like just one thing. So, uh, like when I. A lot of Judaism is about rules. There's a whole chapter in the Torah just about food rules. What you can eat, what you can't eat, what you can wear, what you can't wear, what can be mixed together, what cannot be mixed together. Apparently, biblical Jews love their rules. And so I always grew up with like one specific interpretation of those rules. And then when I found out that Spartic Jews ate beans 
on Passover, even though Ashkenazic Jews did not eat beans on Passover, my mind was blown because being a vegetarian, I hated Passover because it was all about the brisket and the potatoes, both of which I don't like. But then finding out that there was all of this other food I could choose from, oh my God, it was amazing, <laughs> eye-opening. Sounds like you definitely have more options now that you kind of educated yourself more about the different types of Jews. So have you been able to find these traditional foods such as challah and matzah here in stores? Oh yeah, they're always available in stores. I've also made them with my kids. How has that gone? Um, <laughs> well, I would I guess it went well. I mean, we wound up with something. Nobody was injured. We all laughed. It went well. Laughs make it all worth it. Yeah. Did you used to cook these meals and bake these with your mother when you were younger? I remember helping my mom get ready for Passover all the time. She didn't make her own matzah. That wasn't something she did, but she made the chicken soup and she made the matzah balls to go in the chicken soup and she would make the kogels and she would make the brisket and my favorite was the honey cake. And then um, with my own kids, I make um, hamantaschen with them, which goes with a different holiday. Also one of my three favorites, Purim. And they're, um, they're, they're kind of like a sugar cookie with a jelly in the middle. Oh. I, I think, think I've seen those. Probably. I think that they might be Polish in origin, but I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. But I've made those with my kids because I'm not about to make a brisket with them. Yeah, makes sense. So what are some Jewish values or morals that you think are important? Do you have any that you uphold and live by? When I was teaching a religious school and it was time to talk about Hanukkah, I very rarely talked about the miracle of light. That's just a commercialized story that people tell. What I talked about was Hanukkah. With Hanukkah, you want to be the shamash. When you light the menorah, there's one candle that stands above all the other ones. And that's the candle you light with the match. And then you use that candle to light all of the other candles. So it's the helper candle. And that what you want to be is that helper candle. And I often would teach about Maimonides and the ladder of giving. One of my favorite mitzvot in Judaism is one called Tikkun Olam, which is healing the world. And so I would talk about different ways of giving and how those different ways help to heal the world. And it can be literal or it can be figurative. 
And so we would also talk about different ways of giving. With the ladder of giving, there's um, giving to an individual when it's like directly asked for. There's giving to an individual when it's not asked for. There's, you know, donations to organizations. And then like at the very top, the best form of giving is helping another learn how to help themselves. And that's ultimately what you strive to, to do. Yeah, I think those are beautiful messages and how Judaism is so focused on giving and selflessness. And I think that's, that's beautiful. So thank you for informing us more about your religion. I know I personally didn't really know much about it, but it was wonderful learning about it. So for our final topic, we're gonna talk more about food and your food interests. So what cultural cuisine or cuisines would you say is your favorite? Um, so my top three favorite cuisines would be Mexican, Thai, and Mideastern. And those are my favorites because it's really easy to find vegetarian and gluten-free in all of those cuisines. What, do you have a favorite vegetarian dish, just like an ultimate favorite one from any one of these three cuisines that you just mentioned? Oh gosh, I don't know. Like if we're going to get down to the nuts and bolts and what my favorite food is, it's probably a deep dish stuffed cheese and spinach pizza, which does not fit into any of those <laughs> cuisines. <laughs> but I mean, I am born and raised in Chicago, mm -hmm. so. Have you ever tried to make a deep dish stuffed yes. pizza yourself? Oh yeah. How did it go? Oh, it went fine. I, um, one of my jobs in college was working at a gas station where we also made pizza. So, I know how to make pizza. <laughs> the pizza at the gas station wasn't necessarily the best, but because I've always been interested in cooking, I would play around with what I was given and I would experiment. And because of the job, I was able to experiment in somebody else's kitchen and with all the tools I needed. So, there would be times when I would make deep dish and stuffed pizza at the gas station, even though I wasn't supposed to. And I also figured out how to make stuffed crust pizza, which again, I probably wasn't supposed to. But I mean, nobody complained. So then when I became gluten free and pretty much had to do it for myself, I knew how to do it. Yeah, It was a good learning experience. Mm -hmm. So what's your favorite restaurant to go to for these deep dish pizzas? Chicago Pizza and Pasta has a deep dish gluten-free pizza. But currently my favorite restaurant to offer gluten-free food is Tweet in Uptown. They have an amazing gluten-free menu. They have gluten-free Belgian waffles which I have never had any other place, and they are so good. So how about your favorite Thai restaurant? I don't have one right now because my favorite one closed. Oh, what was it? It was um, 
oh god what was it called i'm blanking on the name it was in irving park it was on irving park in kedzie and i'm totally blanking on the name it closed like five or six years ago oh, that was a long time yeah and i mean there are good places but their food was really good like at my wedding we had thai food at my wedding yeah you definitely love thai food a lot it's really good <laughs> So I just find it so interesting that your favorite cultural cuisines are things like Thai and Mexican and Middle Eastern, yet this is so different from your own culture. It's so different from the Romanian culture, maybe even from the Jewish culture and the foods that you eat as a traditional Jew. So part of the reason why I'm focusing mainly on food for this podcast is to show that food really does hold a lot of power in uniting people of all backgrounds together. So what are your thoughts about food overcoming prejudice? Do you agree, disagree? Do you want to add something to the statement? Um, growing up, my, my, dad, my dad used to own a restaurant. He owned a hot dog restaurant, but he's always been interested in food also. And both he and my mom cooked. My mom cooked more like standard, you could recognize what she made. And my dad was more, what happens if we throw this together? So, I mean, even though they both kept kosher and it did limit what we were able to eat in one sense, the fact that they were so like open to trying things. So like I grew up eating Indian food and I grew up eating Ethiopian food and I grew up eating Mideastern food and I grew up eating I never really liked Chinese food, um, but I loved Thai food, and it, it's hard to live around Chicago and not love Mexican food. Yeah. So I don't know if it's because they were Jewish, and so they were already eating food outside of the norm, or if it's just their personalities that they then like shared with me, and now we're sharing with our kids. I think it's great how your parents, they made dishes from different cultures, but also made sure to stay within your culture and keep it kosher. I think it must have been difficult sometimes, but definitely something beneficial because it creates more open-minded people, more accepting people, and I think that's a great idea. So finally, we're going to end this interview off on a fun note by playing a game that was inspired by a book called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking by Anna von, Anya von Bremsen, sorry. So essentially, von Bremsen was explaining how cooking Russian foods with her mother used to bring her mother back to those Soviet Union days. So in order to uphold this concept of the power of food, I'd like to play a short game with you that proves just how much history and memories are intertwined with food. So essentially what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna describe an event and you're gonna tell me what food immediately comes to mind when you think about this event. If you'd like to elaborate more on the specific, specific moment, you could do so, and we'd be happy to hear about it. So let's begin. What food immediately comes to mind when you think of college? Um, when I think of college, I think of beer nuggets, and I think of Red Bull. 
long nights. So what food comes to mind when you think of cold, rainy days? When I think of cold, rainy days, um, that would be good for like cholent. Cholent is, it's kind of like an overcooked stew is the best way to put it. According to Jewish tradition, you're not supposed to use any electricity on Shabbat. Most Jews don't follow that, but you know, the Orthodox do. But because of that, there's this type of food where essentially like a stew, there were a lot of beans and vegetables and potatoes and meat. And they would put it into a slow cooker and they would like, you know, put it to cook and then like they wouldn't do anything else with it. So Saturday after Shabbat services were over, it would already be done and you hadn't actually done any work. And my dad, once I became vegetarian, he would make a vegetarian cholent and a meat cholent. Interesting. So what food comes to mind when you think of movie night with your kids? Okay, so movie, movie night growing up was always pizza, but with my kids, we've often done Thai and popcorn. Makes sense, especially the Thai part. What food comes to mind when you think of a long day at the beach? Popsicles and watermelon. And last one, what food comes to mind when you think of Monday mornings as a child right before school? orange juice. That's a good one. So that concludes this game and our interview today. I had a great time listening to your responses and learning more about Edgewater and of course about your religion. So thank you for your time today. That marks the end of our staff interviews for this season of Slice of Culture. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to and learning about the wonderful staff members here at the Edgewater Public Library. The next segment is sadly our last one for this season. So definitely don't miss out on that one. Until next time.